You may be seated, and we're going to dismiss our kids to their breakout group with Mr. Justin and Miss Diana. And as they're headed out, you can turn in your copy of God's Word um, to the book of Micah. Thanks, babe. Book of Micah. And we're going to be wrapping up Micah today. So if you're new around here, for the last few months, we have been in a series called The Hidden Prophets, in which we've been exploring uh, the books in the Old Testament that are known as the Minor Prophets. There are 12 of these books. Today we're wrapping up the fourth of them, which is Micah. And uh, Micah is a book that is known as a pre-exilic book. So thus far, we've been taking all of these in chronological order, and everything that we've looked at thus far has been pre-exilic. And so you can divide these minor prophets up into three sections, pre-exilic meaning before the exile, when both Israel and Judah are carried away by outside aggressors, the Assyrians, the Babylonians come in and destroy things and carry people off into exile. You have the exilic prophets who are speaking during the time in which the people are living in captivity in Babylon. And then you have the post-exilic prophets uh, that we will ultimately get to who are speaking and teaching at a period of time when the people are finally allowed to return back to their land and to Jerusalem. And so uh, thus far we've looked at Jonah, Amos, Hosea, and Micah. the four pre-exilic minor prophets. And we've seen a number of things in these books, um, but, but just in particular, I, I want to point out four primary things that we've seen that relate to who God is, because that's the question that we've been asking kind of throughout all of this, is, is who is this God? And so in Jonah, we, we saw God's heart for the nations, Right? Like God is a God that cares not just about the people of Israel and Judah, but he's a God who cares about everybody. And so he sends Jonah to the land of Assyria and specifically to the city of Nineveh. These were the um, aggressors against Israel. They were the ones who were their primary enemy at the time. And Jonah doesn't want to go, right? Jonah's not interested in the Lord saving these people. And and so the book is largely about God's heart for other people, meaning the world, but also Jonah's unwillingness to be obedient to God and what God wants. Amos, we saw God's heart for the vulnerable. The fact that the nation of Israel had oppressed the poor and had taken advantage of people. And so we see God's heart for those folks. And the fact that Israel had in no way modeled God's heart for the poor. In Hosea, we saw God's passion for his own glory and his anger at the fact that the people had abandoned the worship of him to worship all of these other gods. And then in Micah, the theme has been God's perfect justice and Israel's complete lack of justice, not just specific sins like oppressing the poor or taking advantage of the vulnerable, but just in general, the lack of justice that pervades the land. And, and so in many ways, it's been this abandonment of a call to be holy as God is holy, which is a call that the Lord repeatedly makes throughout the Old Testament. Be holy as I am holy. With Hosea, it was largely an abandonment of the Ten Commandments, or what's sometimes known as the Decalogue. 
The people had abandoned God being their only God and having no other gods before him. With Amos, the theme was largely the abandonment of the Shema. Or what could be called the great commandment that we read earlier, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And then with Jonah, it's largely about an abandonment of the law of God, which is ultimately a call to obedience. Do what I've told you to do. Like, if you love me, if you are my people, if you want me to be your God, then the call is a call to obedience. And so throughout these, as we've taken them in chronological order, we've seen how the people has ju- have just systematically abandoned the Lord altogether. They've abandoned the law. They've abandoned this command to love their neighbors as themselves. They've abandoned even just the basic principles of just moral virtuous living, right? Loving God and loving other people. And here's how you do it. Like you don't steal, you don't murder, like you don't covet, like all that. And then just to kind of sum it all up, they, they have no intention whatsoever to be holy in the way that God is holy. That's not even on their radar. So that is what we have seen thus far. A God who is loving and just and a people who in all ways have done the opposite of what he wants, despite the ways that he's come through for them, despite the ways he's provided for them, despite the ways that he's called them to repentance, and he's tried to convict them of their sin, they have just pressed on. And and here's the thing, a question that can pop up as you read through something like the Minor Prophets is, what relevance does this have to us today? But hopefully you've seen, as we've walked through this, that it has tremendous relevance to us today. And the world of ancient Israel and Judah is not all that different from America 2021, right? Like, there is war going on all over. The the people largely are a people who are irreligious, or if they are religious, they're worshiping things that are not the one true God. In their case, they're in many ways worshiping money, they're worshiping power, they're worshiping military might, and in some cases, just outright worshiping false gods, right? So, so if you start to read through this and examine the world at the time, it's not all that different. The people who had power crush and oppress the people who do not have power. The poor have no voice. They have no ability to move past the uh, state that they found themselves in. Those who are victims of injustice are unable to push back against the injustice that they've experienced. And so a lot of the same things that pervade uh, the news and social media today, we're seeing in the pages of the Minor Prophets, which on the surface seem like something that should have no relevance or bearing in our lives. And yet they do. And here's the thing. The same God that is speaking into that situation is the same God that's speaking into our world today. It's it's the same God. And as we will see, he has not changed. He has always been the same, and he will always be the same. And and so with those things in mind, let's look today at the end of Micah, Micah chapter 7. We're going to begin in verse 18. Who is a God like you? pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. 
You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. The word of the Lord. So there is this seemingly schizophrenic thing that happens when you read the minor prophets. Have y'all noticed this? <laughs> like they will deliver all of these dire warnings. You people are so sinful. Here are all of the ways you abandon the Lord. Here's the destruction that's coming for you. Here are the specific armies that are going to come in and wipe you out. And then suddenly they'll turn and say, but everything's going to be okay. Have you noticed that? Like, like it happens over and over again. And, and I think the question we have to ask is, how can this be true? Right? How can this be true? How can destruction be coming because of sin and yet somehow the future be bright? Because that's exactly what these guys are saying. Amos talked about it. Hosea talked about it. And now Micah is talking about it. And, and so Micah has done this several times. Chapter 4 is an example of we've gone from all of these warnings to, but listen, the Lord is going to redeem Israel. The Lord is going to bring a redeemer. The Lord is going to save. And even here, this is how the book ends. These are the last words of this book, that God is going to come through, and, and he is going to remain faithful. So Micah does this several times. He inserts these buts. Yes, these terrible things are going to happen, but then God will cast our sins into the depths of the sea, and he will again have compassion on us. And so we're going we're to wrap up today by asking the same question that we asked at the very beginning of this book about a month ago, and, and it is, who is this God? Who is this God? Because one of the reasons why we would read the scriptures in the first place is so that we can come to a deeper understanding of who God is and what he desires from us. And so we're asking that same question today. And Micah has been striving to reveal God's character to us. And in particular, the fact that God's character is perfect in justice. The reality is that God has a multitude of attributes Many of y'all know this if you read our most recent book club book with us in his image that talks about the attributes of God. Sometimes his attributes get boiled down simply to being love, that God is simply a God of love, and certainly God is perfect in love, but somehow there is this tension between God's perfect love and God also being perfect in justice. And Micah in particular has been holding up this lens of justice. And what I want to do today is consider what the Old Testament as a whole declares about God's character, because it's not just the minor prophets. And we're going to do that by looking at the Old Testament verse that is most quoted in the Old Testament. It's one of the fascinating things about the Bible in general is, is that it is endlessly self-referential. Even though it was written over like 1,400 to 1,600 years, and there are like at least 40 different human authors in the pages of scripture, it is constantly connecting itself together in this amazing way. And we've seen it here in the Minor Prophets 
as well. There's one passage in particular that I want to look at. It's this passage that gets quoted over and over again throughout the Old Testament. So if you would, real quick, turn with me over to Jonah chapter 4. This isn't going to be on the screen. Jonah chapter 4. We looked at this months ago, and if you don't remember the story of Jonah, I mentioned it briefly earlier. Jonah's a guy who's called by the Lord to go to Nineveh. He doesn't want to go. He tries to physically run away from God, but that doesn't work. The Lord gets his attention famously by having him swallowed by a fish, which sometimes that story gets it's made into simply being about that. But, but it's a, about a guy who like the, finally just relents and says, God, I, I guess I'll do what you're calling me to do. And then he goes, he preaches this half-hearted message to the people of Nineveh, and then somehow the people turn and repent of their sin and fall with the Lord. It's a crazy story in many ways. But we get to chapter 4 of Jonah, which sometimes is the chapter that we forget even exists. Because in chapter 3, the people of Nineveh repent. It seems like Jonah's been successful and the book should be over. And for many people, that is where the story ends. But then we get to chapter 4. And here's what he says in verse 1 of chapter 4. Nineveh has just repented and, and has just been like redeemed by God. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. Right? He, he, he just, I mean, like, think of everything he's been through. Miraculous stuff. He just saw something that, like, you couldn't possibly fathom would happen. And he's angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee for Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. So Jonah, don't miss this, Jonah is angry because God has relented in destroying the Assyrians. He's angry because God has saved these people. Why? Because they're the enemies of Israel, right? That's why he's angry. They don't deserve to live. They don't deserve grace. They don't deserve mercy. They deserve death. And so Jonah is furious about this. And he says, I didn't want to go because of what I know about your character, God, I know that you are slow to anger and you are abounding in steadfast love and that you love to relent from disaster, like that that's the kind of God you are. And so it's fascinating to me that that's where we begin this whole journey with the minor prophets is we begin this journey with a group of people who, by our standards, the Lord should just wipe off the face of the earth. I mean, they are heinous, evil people. If you go back and read the history of Assyria, I mean, like war crimes doesn't even begin to describe the kinds of things that they did to their enemies. Just horrible, terrible things. And yet the Lord relents from destroying them. He calls them to repent and turn to him. And they do in that moment. And Jonah says, I didn't want to go because I know what your character is like. I know who you are, God. When Jonah says those words, he's actually quoting God to God. And he's referencing Exodus 34. Turn with me there real quick. If you need a Bible, by the way, we have some back here on our resource table. Feel free to grab one. Exodus 34. And what we learn is that Jonah only kind of quotes half the passage. Exodus 34, beginning in verse 6, the Lord passed before him, him is Moses, 
He passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Oh, but here's this turn again. But who will by no means clear the guilty? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So here's that thing again. Like God is all of these wonderful things, and then he's not. Isn't that fascinating? It's important for us to recognize the context in which Moses is hearing these words. At this moment, he is on Mount Sinai, like they're wandering around in the desert. He's on Mount Sinai, and he's receiving a replacement set of Ten Commandments. And if you remember the story, the reason why he needed a replacement set was because the first time he came down off the mountain carrying these stone tablets, he comes down and he finds that the people have made a golden calf and they're bowing down to it as their God. And he is so angry that he drops these tablets and he breaks them. Now God's angry as well and expresses his desire to just be done with these people, and yet Moses intercedes and fasts before the Lord, and God relents in his anger and then declares these words about his character. This is who I am, he says. This is what I'm like. Now, a couple Bible trivia facts I find interesting. Uh, One, this is the first time in the Bible where we get any kind of a description of God's character. Right? You go through the whole book of Genesis, mostly through the book of Exodus, before we get to any point where God says, this is who I am and what I'm like. We know things God has done up to this point, certainly, but, but who is he? How does he operate? That's the first time that we learn about this. And then also, this passage describing God's character is the most quoted Verse, Old Testament verse in the Old Testament. So you see it pop up again and again and again and again, sometimes completely as we just read it, sometimes in bits and pieces. You see it pop up in the New Testament as well. It is a constant refrain, especially for the people of Israel. Here is what I am like. And I think one of the reasons why this gets repeated so often is because the people are so quick to forget who God is. They're so quick to forget what he's like. And they take advantage of the fact that he is slow to anger. They take advantage of his long-suffering grace. And listen, guys, we are no different in this. We are no different in this. So let's unpack this a little bit. So, So what does he say he's like? He's merciful. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That phrase, steadfast love, pops up over and over and over again. And then he expounds on the ways these characteristics play out. He keeps steadfast love for thousands. And I think the inference there is not just thousands of people, but like thousands of generations. He forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. But then it seems to say, except when he doesn't. He will not clear the guilty, but he will visit the iniquity of the fathers on subsequent generations. So is it just me or is that confusing? Right? There's a tension here. It seems like doublespeak. 
He is all of these things except when he's not. And a lot of times, if you hear this statement about God's character quoted, you'll hear only the first part, right? Especially in today's world. Like, remember who God is. He, he's, he's just lovey-dovey, right? He loves you all the time. He's merciful. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. Hard stop. Right? And this is kind of what we do with the Bible. This is one of our bad habits. We, we kind of grab the pieces that sound good to us, that we like, and, and we jettison the rest. But if we're being intellectually honest, we have to engage it fully for what it is and for what it says. And we have to wrestle with mystery, and we have to wrestle with the tension that all of this brings up. And, and so, so what do we do with this? Here are a few things for us to recognize this morning. First of all, this passage insinuates that everybody is guilty before God. Did you notice that? Everybody is guilty before God. Some will be forgiven and some won't be forgiven. And I think what the Bible holds up as the thing that separates the forgiven from those who are not forgiven is repentance. Repentance. There are those who will recognize their sin, seek forgiveness, and seek to turn from their sin. And there are those who will close their eyes, ears, and heart and press on in their sin. And from the Old Testament to the New, this is a consistent call from the Lord to everybody. Repent. This is Jesus' basic message, Matthew 4.17, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's like the first words to come out of his mouth once his ministry begins. That's the call. Now notice that that's not just a call to intellectual assent. Jesus' Jesus's primary call to people is not, I, I just want you to believe that I am who I claim to be. Now that's certainly a part of it. But if your belief in who Jesus claims to be does not in any way lead you to turn from your sin, then what the Bible would say is that that belief is not real. Like, so, so the New Testament goes into great detail on that. James especially kind of talks about that, right? That, that if, there isn't, if there isn't works that go along with our espoused faith, then it isn't real faith. Like if we're not changing, if we're not treating other people in the ways that God would have us treat other people based on what we believe to be true about him, based on our knowledge of him, then it isn't real faith, right? So faith is not just something that we intellectually assent to. Faith, faith is something that changes us. That shouldn't be surprising considering all of the language that Jesus uses about like being born again, like being transformed the language Paul uses about the old man coming off and the new man being put on, we see these things over and over again. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And we talk about this often, but the biblical model of repentance is not just a model where I feel bad about my sin, or I feel guilty, or I feel shameful about things that I've done, but, but it's a model where, based on what I believe to be true of God, and, and what I believe he has done for me through Christ, I am like turning off the road that I've been on and I am now on a new path. So, so the Greek word that gets translated as repentance, it, like it, it includes this idea of, of turning, of changing. I was on this road and now I'm on this road and I'm moving forward. And if you've been with us throughout much of this study, here's what you've seen. God, in his love and mercy, sending prophets to call the people to what? Repent. 
right? To make them aware of their sin. To let them know the ways that they've abandoned the Lord. Not just to hurl insults at them. Not just to lob bombs. But to go, guys, what are you doing? Like, don't you know who God is? Don't you know what he's like? Don't you know if you'll turn back to him, he will forgive you? And he'll receive you back despite the things you've done? Like heinous things. Because he's merciful and he's slow to anger. He's literally been giving them hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years to recognize these things and to wake up. And yet there is warning that comes along with this. If you don't, like, here is what will happen. If there's just continual, a continual lack of repentance, there will be destruction. That was largely the purpose of the prophets. And here's the thing. If God is anything, he is consistent. He is consistent. Here's something else that he says about himself in 2 Chronicles 7. He says, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Notice what he's describing there. If these people who I've called my people and who I've said, I want to be your God, if they will repent and turn to me, right? If they will pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, this is repentance, then I'm going to hear that. I honor that. I love that. And I will forgive the things that they've done. And I will heal their land. Now, that's about as clear as you can get, isn't it? That's not veiled. That's not written in code. You don't need a doctorate to figure that out. And fascinatingly, that's exactly how our study of the minor prophets began. But it wasn't Israel humbling themselves and turning from their sins and repenting. It was Nineveh. The people who you, like you wouldn't expect it in a million years. They're the ones who give this example of what it looks like to do just that. In Jonah, the whole city puts on sackcloth and ashes and grovels in humility before the Lord. Forgive us. And Israel, as personified by Jonah, is disobedient, choosing to run away from the Lord rather than to humble themselves. So here's what you can't say about God. You can't say that he's violated his character in any way. God has done the thing that he claimed to be true of himself from the very beginning of Israel. You can't say that he's changed. And you also can't say that he hasn't made his will and intentions known to the people. You can't make the case that God hasn't told them. Right? He's told them in a multitude of ways, in a multitude of voices, over a multitude of years. Remember last week, Micah 6, Micah said, he has told you, O man, what is good, right? If you want to know what it means to follow the Lord, he's told you what it is. It's in the law. Go read it. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, 
right? To treat other people in the way that God desires for you to treat them, to love kindness and mercy, and to walk humbly with your God, meaning to be faithful to your God as he is faithful to you. In other words, be holy for I am holy. Recognize who I am and aspire to be like me. Aspire to my character. Reflect my character, which is marked by justice and loving kindness. And walk humbly with me. Recognize that I am God and you're not. You are not me. And be faithful to me as I'm faithful to you. And yet our sin, like our issue from the very beginning, all the way back in the garden is we really want to be God. Like, we don't want to let him be him. We don't want to be obedient to him. We, for some reason, think we know better. And, and that is largely the story of Scripture, and it is the story even today. Right? That we aspire to these incommunicable attributes of God. We desire to be all-knowing and in complete control and all-powerful. And, and we pursue all of these means that we think are going to acquire that for ourselves. We pursue money and we pursue power and we pursue success and position and fame or whatever. These things that we think will bring us control and power and notoriety and fame and money Yet all along, God is just calling the people to humbly seek him and reflect his character in obedience. Now let's go back to Micah 7. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? The people have not been completely destroyed, right? Israel in the north has largely been decimated, but when the Babylonians come in and take Jerusalem. They carry a large number of the people away into captivity. God still in his mercy, even when he would be justified in completely wiping everybody out, God still preserves a remnant. And that's because even though the people have been unfaithful to his covenant, remember this covenant that he made with Abraham, the people have not kept up their end of the bargain, even though God has. God remains faithful to his covenant promises. He does not retain his anger forever, but he delights in steadfast love because he's a God who keeps his covenant promises. Right? God's default is not anger. You may think of God in that way. You may picture him as being this angry God, as sort of this capricious and arbitrary God, but that's far more Zeus than it is the God of the Bible, right? God's not sitting on a cloud just itching to hit people with a lightning bolt. That's not how the scriptures have described him. Instead, he will have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea, and he will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. In the covenant. That's what he's alluding to. So Micah ends, after all this talk of the people's sin and the warnings of destruction to come, with a reminder of God's promises. What he swore to the patriarchs of Israel in the days of old. And friends, all of this is leading us to Christ. All of this is pointing ahead 
to Jesus. It is leading us to this new covenant where in Christ, God has provided a way for our sins to be trod underfoot and thrown into the depths of the sea. Jesus, who comes from this preserved remnant of Judah, takes on the penalty for our sins and makes a way, not just for Israel, but for all nations, tribes, and tongues to be reconciled to the Lord. And here's what we have to realize. God is still calling us to repentance. That's not something that's gone away. Remember, I said it was the the basic message of Christ. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Meaning, I'm here. Like heaven is now manifest in the incarnation, in my presence. You are looking at it. You're hearing it. So repent. It's leading us into this new covenant where in Christ there is hope. Where we can be freed from our sin where the penalty that we are due, the justice that must be served in God's perfect justice has now been satisfied because of Christ's death and resurrection. But he's still calling us to turn. He's still calling us to change. He's still calling us to be holy as he is holy. He's still calling us to observe the basic commands that we see here. To love him and to love our neighbor because we love him. And to treat other people with equity and justice and mercy and kindness because that's who he is. He still still desires for us to be a people who model his character. But now through Christ, two significant things have happened that equip us for this work. One, God's spirit, God's Holy Spirit now indwells the lives of believers. In the Old Testament, God's Spirit kind of comes and goes. It will come on certain people at times and and then leave. And and now, if you've read the story of Pentecost and Acts 1 and 2, God's Holy Spirit has now come to live permanently in the lives of those who have faith in Christ, empowering you for repentance and empowering you for maturity And empowering you for the mission that God has laid out for you and for me. And so if we will submit to the leading of the Spirit in our lives, if we will not quench the Spirit, as Scripture talks about, then we will increasingly grow to embody God's character, the character of Christ in our lives. You are not left alone in your finiteness, in your inability to be perfect. God has made a way. He is truly in and with us. And then secondly, because of Christ's sacrifice, the scripture says all our sin is covered, past, present, and future. Because Jesus is the perfect sacrifice for sin. In the Old Testament sacrificial system, you had this yearly day of atonement where animals would be sacrificed for the sin of all the people, but then it's like the next year, it's got to be re-upped again. And yet Jesus is once and for all the perfect, unblemished, spotless lamb slain so that all might be reconciled to God. There doesn't need to be another sacrifice. There doesn't need to be a future sacrifice because your sin is covered by his blood. If God is anything, he is consistent. 
He is unchanging. The God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New Testament. He's a God who delights in steadfast love. His default is that he's merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But he is also, he's also still a God who will by no means clear the guilty. Those who close their ears and their eyes and their heart and their minds and just press on in what they've been doing in not submitting to him in obedience, in not seeking to emulate his character in their lives, who will be guilty of putting their faith and trust in themselves and in their good works. People who will not do justice and love mercy and walk in humble faithfulness to God. And this is precisely why the church exists today. In this age, we are the ones who have now been sent by God into our world to declare the truth of who God is and what he has done for us through Christ. Like the church inhabits this prophetic role today in many ways. Filled with the Spirit of God, we're sent to declare the good news that Christ has made a way for our sins, to be forgiven no matter who we are or what we've done. Some of us may think there's just no way that God can look past some of the things that I've done in my life. And yet when you read the story of Israel and the things that they had done and the fact that God was willing to be merciful to them, you better believe he'll be merciful to you. And the church exists to continue to declare what God had said of himself to Moses. It was so repeated in the Old Testament. But listen to me, guys, and let me close with this. This is so critical. If, if people don't see loving kindness coming from your life, your message will be rendered null and void. Right? If, if, if the character of Christ is not coming out of your life, however imperfectly, Anything you claim to be true of Christ will be rendered null and void. What's compelling about the gospel if you treat me the same way that everybody else treats me? What's compelling about the church if the church is just full of hypocrisy and uh, sexual abuse and abuse of power and domineering leaders not modeling or emulating the way of Christ, not treating people with dignity or equity or mercy or kindness. Why would I want to believe the things you're saying when it seems like you don't even do those things? So many people have said no to Christ because what they, of what they've seen in the lives of other so-called Christians. They've said no to Christ because of what they've seen come out of the church or what they've experienced in the church. A place that's supposed to be like a refuge, right? A place where you're supposed to find your people and find hope and healing. You better believe the enemy is working against the church. You better believe he's trying to sow seeds of division and discord and just sin. 
because it does great damage. And, and many of us are examples of people who are still a little tentative about this Jesus thing because of what we've experienced, not because of anything Jesus has said. God's desire for Israel was not just that they would be a people who espoused belief in him, but his desire was that they would be a nation who modeled his character. Hopefully, we've driven that point home today. And that's largely what the Old Testament law is about. So when God's people, you know, when they claim that title, that they knew what it looked like to reflect God's nature to their neighbors. And so when they didn't, when they oppressed their neighbor and swindled their neighbor and worshipped false gods and didn't do justice and didn't extend mercy, they were actively defaming God and his character. Let us not be guilty of the same thing today. May our lives present not only a consistent message of hope in Christ, but may we also live a counter-cultural lifestyle where we actually do unto others as has been done unto us through Christ. Let's pray. Father, we confess that there is great mystery in the pages of Scripture. There are things that seem to be in tension. There are things that seem to be confusing. And yet, Father, this morning I pray that you would communicate your truth into our hearts. God, that you would reveal to us through the power of your Spirit what is true of you, of who you are, and the fact that you are unchanging, and the fact that you err on the side of loving kindness and mercy, and long-suffering grace and patience. Father, would you give us hearts that long to model your character, to treat other people in the ways that you've treated us, not just so that we can be good or moral people, but because of what we believe to be true about you. May we be so moved by the love and grace and sacrifice of Christ that our lives truly are perpetually transformed, that that I truly am a different person next year than I am right now. Father, would you reveal to us the areas of our lives as we prayed earlier that we have not fully submitted to you? And God, would you give us an abiding sense of humility about the things we don't know and don't understand? Would you help us to recognize that you are God and we are not? And that you are unchanging even in the ways that we vacillate. God, fill us with hope and joy through your spirit to be the men and women you've called us to be in our families and in our neighborhoods and in our workplaces and in the world around us, declaring the message of the gospel and also modeling the truth of who Christ is. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.